Very lastly, I know this is a lot of information. This one's fast. Management of VQ mismatch. Um, as I said in the um, preface, the reason I am including this is because it became such a huge issue with a lot of my COVID patients. So remember from Vents 101 that the lungs do this really clever thing. If you're the lungs, unlike in the rest of the body, the lungs are special. You want to send blood to the areas with high oxygen. You don't want to send blood to the areas of low oxygen, right? You want to send blood to the areas of high oxygen. How do the lungs do that? Well, we like the high oxygen. We don't like the low oxygen. So they do something called HPV, not the STI, HPV as in hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction, where they vasoconstrict in response to low O2 and then vasodilate in response to high O2. And it's really mostly that vasoconstriction though, because what happens when you vasoconstrict in response to low O2? It shunts the blood over to the areas of high O2. That is the mechanism by which your body ensures ventilation-perfusion matching, where there is most ventilation, where you have the best ventilated and oxygenated alveoli, you'll want to send your blood there. Now, in order to match these two things, you have to have your alveoli functioning, your pulmonary capillary also functioning. If your alveoli stops functioning, but you still have good pulmonary capillary function, you end up with a shunt. That primarily affects your oxygenation. Why? Because you can send as much blood as you want to by that alveoli, but it doesn't matter because oxygen can't get to it. What about the opposite scenario? What about if your alveoli is just fine, but your pulmonary capillary not so much? So, that is physiologic dead space. Because you can move as much air as you want in and out of that alveoli, but it doesn't matter because the blood can't get to it for actual gas exchange to occur. So we have our spectrum of VQ mismatch. Often patients will have both, especially if they have really patchy lung disease. Um, now there's a very important thing here with dead space in particular, which is the following. Normally, if your CO2 is high, you increase the minute ventilation, increase the rate, increase the tidal volume, that lowers your CO2. Unless your CO2 is high because of physiologic dead space. Let's say we have a PaCO2 of 65. So we're like, okay, PaCO2 is high. We better go up on our minute ventilation. We go up on the respiratory rate, the tidal volume. We move a lot of air in and out of that alveoli to clear the CO2. Oh, wait, that alveoli, we're not bringing the CO2 in the first place. The CO2 is not even getting to it because we have physiologic dead space, because we have a pulmonary capillary problem. We can move air in and out. CO2 won't get to it. And so we don't actually get rid of the CO2 because it doesn't matter that we're moving air in and out if the CO2 can't actually get to that air. And so in this situation, if you have a lot of physiologic dead space, what you will see is that your PaCO2 will be significantly higher than your end tidal. So think about this. You have some physiologic dead space. Your minute ventilation is good. You're moving air in and out, but the CO2 can't get to the air, so the minute ventilation doesn't really matter. In this situation, as we just said, PaCO2 will be high, right? But what happens in this situation if you measure Entitled CO2. Is it going to be high as well? No, it's not, right? Because the whole problem 
is that the CO2 can't get to the alveoli. And so it's probably actually going to be low because you're not getting the CO2 into the air that you're exhaling in the first place. The difference between your PaCO2 and your intidal CO2, that is called a dead space fraction. This is how you approximate it. If you have both ABGs and intidal, which hopefully a lot of you do because conscious sedation guidelines, most of you hopefully have intidal. You can approximate your physiologic dead space by doing the following. Measure your PaCO2 on an ABG. Simultaneously, measure your intidal CO2. Then you're like, okay, what percentage of my PaCO2 is my intidal CO2? So you do some simple math. You say, okay, my PaCO2 minus my intidal divided by my CO2 by PaCO2. What's that number? If you have a big gradient here, if you have, you know, and this has happened to me with COVID patients, I will have legit a PaCO2 of 150. This happened to me once. I've maxed out my minute ventilation and I'm like, my minute ventilation is 12. I should not have a PaCO2 of 150 on a minute ventilation of 12. It doesn't make any sense. Then I measure my entitled CO2. And my entitled CO2 is like 40 or 50. Okay, my PaCO2 is 150. My intidal is 50. Yeah, I have a huge physiologic dead space fraction. Now, here's the thing. I can increase the minute ventilation as much as I want to, but if I have that big of a dead space fraction, it will do me no good whatsoever. And the mistake people make here is they panic because they have this super high PaCO2. They go nuts and they flog the lungs to try and fix it by increasing the tidal volume, increasing the respiratory rate, flogging the lungs. The lungs are very unhappy and it doesn't get you anywhere because it doesn't fix the physiologic dead space at all. So large entitled CO2 gradient, that means you have often large physiologic dead space, increasing your minute ventilation will get you precisely nowhere. So what do you do in this situation? Um, what I started doing in COVID patients initially sort of out of sheer desperation. When I saw that, I was like, okay, we clearly have a major VQ matching problem. We clearly have a big dead space problem. Increasing my minute ventilation is not doing any good at all. So what am I going to do? Well, that means physiologically, I want to improve my VQ matching. Now, what can I do to improve VQ matching? If you remember from the lecture about hemodynamic management of massive PE, because massive PE, you often get a decent amount of physiologic dead space because you have all this clot in your pulmonary capillaries, blah, blah, blah. Um, you remember at that point, my solution was the same as it is here. You want to improve your VQ matching, which will hopefully improve that entitled CO2 gradient. You can do an inhaled pulmonary vasodilator. Um, whichever one of these you have. Nitric oxide is kind of easier to set up. Epoprostenol um, brand names are Flolan, Velitri, there's probably some others. I start these. And what I found in my COVID patients, certainly, um, is that patients who had very high entitled CO2 gradients, very high physiologic dead space fractions, this would make a huge difference. 
it would take some time, but like I would start this and, you know, my initial PACO2 would literally be like 150. And then slowly over the next, you know, multiple hours and sometimes day or two, I'd come down without changing the minute ventilation. And often I'd go down on the minute ventilation because my CO2 was getting better. I'd come down to 80, 70, 50 and down to a relatively normal level. Didn't work with everybody, but there were a number of patients where it did. Um, now, a lot of you may not have either of these or know how to get them in the ED. Um, so in my massive PE talk, I talked about if you don't have those, what are alternatives? And alternatives in that context, in the context of acute RV failure, you can actually do nebulized moronone or nitroglycerin. The same stuff. You just get it from the pharmacy. You stick it in any old nebulizer like you'd use for albuterol. Is this going to work the same way? Because in massive PE, the real reason that you're giving an inhaled pulmonary vasodilator is less to improve your VQ matching and more to offload your right ventricle to decrease your pulmonary vascular resistance to help out that right ventricle. But in this case, you're just doing it for the VQ matching. Um, I don't know the answer. Nobody knows the answer. Anecdotally, um, I have found no. I have had good success with Flowland doing this. Um, I have not had good success with my, uh, milrinone or nitroglycerin. I've had a number, in fact, a decent number of patients um, where in the ED at one of the shops I work in, we can't get um, Flowland, Velitri, Epoprostanol, Nitric. We can't get those in the ED, but I can get them in the ICU. During the height of COVID, we were boarding many, many patients in the ED for a very long time who had awful vents, awful lungs, awful PACO2s. So because I couldn't get my epoprostanol or nitric in the ED, I started doing this. Now, I'd been doing that for a while in the ED for RV failure, for massive PE, and it would work great. It would work well. Um, I would start doing this in the ED, and it didn't really fix my physiologic dead space fraction particularly. And then I would get them upstairs and be like, okay, now let's do the real deal. And then it would start getting fixed. Now, I don't know if maybe I just wasn't dosing it right or not giving enough time. I don't know. Like, there's no literature to really guide me on this. Um, but I think that in a way, it's easier to fix your hemodynamic and RV issues with these guys. Because if you think about it, they don't really need to get all the way to the alveoli. They just need to sort of get to, you know, the pulmonary circulation because you're just trying to basically like vasodilate your pulmonary circulation with the idea of reducing RV afterload. And the sort of threshold for that is you don't have to get all the way to the alveoli necessarily. But if you want to fix dead space, physiologic dead space, you kind of do. You got to get to where the magic happens, where the gas exchanges. That's just my theory. I don't really know. But just as an FYI, for people who don't have access to the real deal, Flowland and Epoprostanol and all that, you can try this in that situation. I just haven't had super good luck with it. Maybe I'm just not using the right dose. As an aside, I have not had problems with people getting hypotensive with this. And I have yet to have problems with people getting hypotensive with either of these solutions, um, with either milrinone nitroglycerin or my nitric or my propostanol. Um, not a lot of it goes systemic when you inhale it, just as an FYI. Okay. So to wrap up, we talked about all of these things mostly, um, in hopefully decent, but not too much detail, maybe too much detail. You'll tell me.
So to review, um, we are going to go back to the bottom line up front. But again, actually, this time we're going to just the bottom line again at the end. So here is sort of the bottom lines as best as I could summarize them for each one of these sections. I'm not going to reread them. It's not all that helpful. Briefly, preface, vent literature is complicated. Think carefully about your goals versus your targets. Is it an appropriate target? Is it getting you to your goal? Or is it the opposite of getting you to your goal? Goal and mechanic ventilation. Figure out, do you have an airway problem, a lung problem, a hemodynamic problem, or a metabolic problem? Decide to intubate accordingly. You're buying time for the lungs to heal. You're preventing the patient from injuring their lungs further. Dyssynchrony causes hypoxia. Don't go nuts with sedation. Try and fix it first. There's a bunch of ways you can think about that and do that. Resistance and compliance. We learned more about looking at waveforms, understanding that you have your static compliance, which you can learn by doing your plateau pressure. You have your airway resistance, which you can sort of conceptualize as the difference between your peak pressure and your plateau pressure. There's some caveats there, but conceptually, you can kind of think about it that way. Um, you can check the patient's lung compliance. It can be very helpful. And then when you're reading the vent, there's a lot of different parameters. It is much easier to read vents in terms of fixing hypercarbic respiratory failure, ventilatory problems, trying to find an optimal PEEP, look at a bunch of different things, pressure volume loops, driving pressure, static compliance to help you ballpark recruitability. Is my patient still recruitable? Right? Over-distending them. What is my optimal PEEP? Inverse ratio of ventilation and APRV. It's just rather than one to two, you do two to one, three to one, APRV, extreme form. You use T high, T low, P high, P low, and then the ball go down the hill. If you just think about the ball rolling down the hill for a certain amount of time, you can kind of figure it out. Reasonable initial settings are P high of 30, P low of zero, T high of five, T low of 0.5, but you got to adjust these. Be very careful when adjusting the T-low. If you set it wrong, then you're going to mess up your release volumes. But also, you can also, the worst thing you can do is let your airway pressures actually get to zero. If you do that, you're going to profoundly de-recruit your patient. Um, I'm now going to say something that um, don't tell my former attendings in fellowship that I'm saying, because most people would disagree with this about APRV. But what I found um, using APRV during COVID, because I was just using a lot more of it than I'd ever used before, and I was just managing so many patients at a time that often I just didn't feel like I had time to give the same kind of attention as I normally would to really carefully titrating that T-low. Um, and so what I started doing with some of the patients, partially because I just needed to cognitively offload and be like, I just need a safety net here, um, but also partially because I discovered that some of the COVID patients who did well on APRV, their compliance was so bad, otherwise saying their elastance was so high that they sort of just would snap back such that it was really hard to set a short enough T-low to make sure the pressures didn't go to zero, a short enough T-low to make sure that the ball didn't fall to the bottom of the hill. Um, so what I started doing, again, as sort of a safety net, if I was at a place that I'm like, I don't know if I can just 
feel really good that I'm going to give the attention this patient needs. I don't have time. I don't have, you know, cognitive offloading sufficient to do it. What I started doing is not setting the PLO at zero because that makes it not exactly foolproof, but it's a safety net because that way, if your PLO is set at five, you can't get to zero, right? Because the hill stops at five. Now that decreases your P high to P low gradient. It can mess with your ventilation and so forth and so on, but it's a safety net. So if your patient's doing well on APRV, but you're really having trouble with it and you're like, I just, I can't figure out how to fix this. I don't know how to deal with it or I don't have time. Um, that's something that most people sort of, I've been taught not to do, but it's actually worked for me well in some specific situations. And so it's not a crazy idea. It helped me out a lot in some specific situations. Lastly, management, VQ mismatch, approximate your physiologic dead space fraction, calculate it, understand if it's high, minute ventilation is not going to help you. Think about trying inhaled pulmonary vasodilator. All right, guys, I know that was a lot of information. Um, one of the things that we're going to do is there's sort of little bits of complexity that are added on to some of these pieces of information that I thought would just be complete information overload if I included all the little bits in this. It may have been information overload already, but I'm going to try and do like little short five minute things as a, by the way, you may have noticed that that wasn't a full explanation. Here's the rest of that. So I'm going to try and put out a couple of those. Anyway, um, I hope this was helpful. I hope this was useful. Um, lastly, um, I'm starting to collect interesting vent pictures in the same way that, you know, like Amalma 2 collects interesting EKGs. I'm not nearly as cool and this is never going to be as cool because I think most people don't think vents are as awesome as EKGs. But anyway, um, is, you know, taking pictures of what the vent looks like when something interesting is happening. And now that we sort of are on the same page about you can actually read the vent, um, starting some interesting discussions of this is what was happening what's going on, you know, including the waveforms, the what's actually happening, the what you want to happen, and trying to work through the problem with those pictures in the ABG. So um, if you are in the situation when you're either like, oh, this is happening, this is cool, or you're like, no idea at all what's happening, um, if you take a picture and sort of ABG surrounding the time of when that picture was taken um, and send them off, we'll post somewhere to send that. Um, I'm also going to try and, you know, have a couple little segments where we work through some of those. All right. We are also going to have the bottom light on front, these two pages of way too much text to these guys included in some shape or form as sort of little cards or little summaries that you can find on the MRAP website because um, a lot of people were asking for that. Hopefully, I kind of summarized them decently enough that it'll be helpful. Thank you so much for listening to all of this, if any of you got through all of it. And good luck with everything everybody's going through right now. Stay safe.